With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. You are in for an uber treat today because I have Fry Warnick and Michael Ward. They are both partners at Vincent and Elkins. We're going to dissect the three biggest enforcement actions in 2020. The Airbus case, J&F Investments, and Goldman Sachs. Fry's going to talk to us about it from the government slash DOJ perspective, and Mike's going to take a look at it from the CCO, compliance practitioner perspective. It's a great episode. I know you'll enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today you are in for an uber-duber special treat because I have uh, Fry Warnick and Mike Ward, both partners at Vincent and Elkins. And we're going to do a podcast on something I've wanted to do with these gentlemen for quite some time. And that's take a look at the three three of the largest uh, anti-corruption cases this year and slice and dice it from a couple of different perspectives. One is to... Uh, Kind of ask Fry questions about the DOJ or government perspective. The second is to ask Mike uh, from the uh, company slash CCO chair perspective. We're going to take a look at Airbus, J and F Investments, and Goldman Sachs. So, gentlemen, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome and thank you both for taking the time to visit with me today. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Good to be back. So, we're going to start with Airbus, and we're going to start with uh, you, Fry. Uh, biggest case uh, ever, um, huge uh, corruption scandals across the globe. We had France, we had the United Kingdom taking the lead, uh, and then we had um, the FCPA unit and uh, indeed other portions of the Department of Justice and U.S. government. So, Fry, what, what does all this mean for uh, workload uh, in the FCPA unit? Well, you know, it's a, it's a good question. The, uh, you know, Airbus case was one that I supervised when I was at DOJ. So, I'm gonna, you know, I'll limit uh, specific answers to what we know publicly. And also, um, you know, I can broadly speak about my experience internally without necessarily getting into uh, anything that would reveal any internal communications from DOJ. But, you know, I think your question as it relates to uh, workload, um, you know, DOJ has significantly increased its resources and dedication to these anti-corruption matters and FCPA matters over several years. Um, you know, example, when I joined the unit back in 2014, <clears throat> there were 19 prosecutors. And when I left, there were 35. And I think that number is about what they still have at this point uh, when I left a year and a half ago. Uh, they are, you know, considerably more and better suited now to to handle these cases, given the increased resources that have been dedicated to these cases. The uh, Airbus case, you know, what you can see is um, it was a significant commitment by the U.S. government to bring this case. Uh, on the uh, press release, there are no less than nine different 
prosecutors mentioned on the U.S. side alone uh, who brought the case, um, both from the DOJ fraud section, from the National Security Division, who's tasked with uh, prosecuting violations of the ITAR, um, and also from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., that teamed up and, and, and brought this case and was domiciled in the, uh, out of the D.C. office. So it was a uh, considerable effort, as you can tell, uh, from that press release, and which is particularly significant given the fact that it was a case that it was, was brought in coordination with the authorities uh, from the PNF in Paris and from uh, the SFO in London. Um, and they, too, uh, from their press releases, you can see dedicated significant efforts as well. So um, in terms of workload, uh, D, while DOJ and the U.S. had a smaller piece of a much larger um, you know, $3 billion, uh, $3.9 billion resolution, um, you know, it was a significant effort uh, all around. And, and even with that smaller share of the pie, it uh, took a considerable effort by the U.S. Brian, government. Uh, working with French prosecutors, uh, working with a, any sort of investigation in France uh, uh, presents unique challenges. Uh, the French blocking statute is, is something that I think many Americans struggle with understanding. I was wondering if you could comment about what's it like at the prosecutor prosecutor to prosecutor level uh, to work uh, with the French prosecutors or, or indeed others across the globe? Well, you know, the the, the blocking statute in France is an unusual uh, animal. I think it's something we struggle with on both the you know, the government side, but also now on the defense side, um, wanting to be cooperative with the U.S. government when you also have to navigate uh, the blocking statute in France, or maybe it's the Swiss uh, data privacy law or just the GDPR more generally now, um, as it's really been developed um, in its most recent vintage. So it's a, um, it's a, it is a unique challenge dealing in the, in the French context. And I think from the government side, uh, there's a great deal of trust that needs to be built up between the government prosecutors in the U S and the French uh, counterparts Primarily because uh, they're, you know, they're relatively new to bringing these types of enforcement actions, and they, uh, I think that it may it may be more largely driven by the Ministry of Justice in France than than necessarily by the the French prosecutors themselves. But there is a, um, I think there's a tendency to be protective of French companies from from the long arm of the U.S. law, and I understand that perspective. Of this. You know, we're talking about Airbus here, which is a quintessentially European company. Um, I also had handled the Rolls Royce matter on behalf of DOJ, where where you're dealing with what was then a quintessentially British company, and you know, the other countries are going to want primacy. They're going to want to take the first crack and not look like they have to leave uh, corruption enforcement to the authorities in the United States to handle, uh, you know, cases that they have the ability to investigate. I think from the Department of Justice perspective, um, there's an understanding as well that that's, that's in the best interest of the U.S. as well, not to be the world's police. And uh, when it can, to, de- to defer those actions to foreign authorities who were most capable of bringing them. I think what you've seen from France now in the last several years is a renewed, or not renewed, but frankly, for the first time, uh, uh, priority um, to bring these types of cases. And 
as that happens, I think you see Airbus is a very good example um, of, of a willingness on the part of the U.S. to step back and take a lesser role um, when you have interested authorities in other countries willing to do so. I can remember at the uh, ACI National FCPA conference several years ago when Kara Brockmeyer and Dan Kahn first talked about publicly the one pie policy. Uh, that later became the anti-piling on policy. It became a policy to coordinate settlements uh, both inside the United States and literally across the globe. But I always go back to that one pie because that for me is the best visual I can think of of the uh, split up of penalties. Could you give a few words on how the DOJ, the process the DOJ thinks or goes through to, to work, um, work out uh, financial settlements with other company, uh, countries, rather? Well, it's a, look, you could spend an hour on that topic alone, and I'll do my best to, to condense it, because I think where, where it comes down to uh, is the U.S. government is going, you know, as, as it has broad reach, maybe um, – it has very broad reach in terms of enforcement of the FCPA and its money laundering statutes. And they uh, are going to, my experience is the government is going to try to extend it as, as far as they can. Where I was saying earlier is when you see um, now, you know, this huge trend towards uh, global resolutions, and we're going to talk about you know, all three of these have uh, foreign enforcement authorities actively engaged now. Um, what you've seen, I think, is the appropriate recognition on the part of the United States to say we want to encourage foreign enforcement of these anti-bribery laws. It's what we've been saying in international fora like the U.N. Convention Against Corruption, um, like the OECD now for decades, is you know the more other countries will stand up their enforcement regimes, the Department of Justice and the SEC are going to be willing to, uh, to step back a bit. And, and, and let them, you know, do what is, frankly, uh, from the U.S. government's perspective, uh, should be done by these other countries. So I, I think there's going to be, uh, um, you know, that recognition factors in heavily into this one pie idea or this anti-piling on idea. As other countries build up and step up their enforcement, the U.S. Uh, more, you know, is going to be more willing now to step back. How that equates in practice is um, if you have a working, good working relationship on the part of the U S government and the foreign authorities, then they're going to sell the idea that, Hey, we know how this process works. And I know this because this is frankly conversations I've had frequently. We can walk you through the process of bringing a case and getting to a resolution with a company bringing charges against individuals, um, and equitably share it. Um, but we need you to put in the sweat equity as well. We need you to actually investigate. We need you to share information. We need you to cooperate. And when we get there, at the end of the day, you will be handsomely uh, compensated by, by getting an extraordinary amount of credit. Um, and the gov- U.S. government will then uh, defer and credit significant sums. And so... You know, in a, in a case like, uh, um, you know, Airbus here, you, you saw, you know, France and the UK getting 90% of the resolution um, and take, and frankly, getting, uh, and handling 90% of the conduct, whereas the U.S. conduct ultimately was, was much more limited. 
Um, sometimes it'll be coextensive, uh, where the conduct under investigation by all the entities is easily, uh, is, is handled kind of, uh, in parallel and covers the same type of conduct and then, uh, can be equitably distributed, uh, you know, based on conversations that happen over periods of months and years between the entities. And, um, and much of this also, uh, you know, on the, on the defense side now, I mean, it's something you really have to think through the idea of trying to get all of the uh, conduct covered. If, if you're at a situation, where you're going to have a resolution with the government, you know, positioning your company in a, in a way that, uh, there's, there's no pieces left on, on, uh, accounted for by the time you resolve with the U S with the foreign authority, because now we've seen over a period of years where the government is really interested um, and able to, uh, to not pile on. I mean, this is a policy they're taking very seriously and that uh, they are that they think, you know, as a practitioner now advising my clients on the defense side, you want to get your arms around all the possible entities you can and have them in the conversation as early as you can if you see that it is likely to result, result in a, a resolution. Um, you know, so I, I think that's the, the, this is the reality we're working with now where, uh, you know, if, if the government in the U S the DOJ and the SEC have partners that they can work with, you know, that can be very beneficial in terms of wrapping everything up, uh, neatly for a company, um, that unfortunately finds itself in a position where they have to resolve. Mike, if I could turn uh, to you now, uh, one of the, um, I guess probably the single biggest question I get for uh, Airbus specifically in cases, large cases, is how does this apply to me? I read the deferred prosecution agreement. I read the information or what other documents are available, and I just can't really understand and even explain to my board what does a case so massive, uh, what does it mean to me? And what are your thoughts on how uh, someone sitting in the CCO chair can digest these and then really put some actionable lessons learned or uh, bullet points for a board or senior management together? Yeah, I think that's exactly the question that compliance officers consistently re- review with themselves, with their teams, with their boards when a big resolution comes out because a compliance officer really, well, he has multiple roles, but from this perspective, you may be reacting to an allegation and you may be in investigation resolution mode, in which case issues like the piling on policy and you know blocking statutes are of vital importance to you. But when you're not in that mode, when you're not actively defending uh, a, uh, an, an investigation or, or an issue, what your focus is on, what are the actionable insights from this resolution that will influence how I structure my program. That is, what does it tell me that I can take actions proactively that will position me better? And I think you know most compliance officers out there, unless they're blessed with some active investigation, have that lens when they when they hear about these investigations. And it's what I did. And what I would advise compliance officers is you should do this yourself, or even better yet assign this task to one of the junior people on your team, that every time an FCPA resolution comes out, they will, especially a junior person, have them analyze this outcome. And I I used to go through these these questions every time and and ask myself, what was the scheme here? 
how did this um, bribery scheme work? Who was the government official who was involved? What was the decision-making uh, authority that they have? What was the just kind of what were the, the what was the mo of the offense here? And then you know is that analogous to my business? Is it in my industry? You know, but it, or is it analogous to my industry? Uh, and and these types of questions are: Can it happen to me? What would my controls be if this happened? Kind of like a take the scenario and turn it on yourself and say, how prepared am I for this? And then the second part of that equation or the, that analysis would be, you know, what controls were discussed in the resolution that were either criticized explicitly or implicitly, maybe even what controls were encouraged or what did the resolution favorably recognize? You know, all the, the rage now is data analytics, you know, like, you don't see many criticisms of data analytics, but you see lots of favorable mentions. Like, what what was the what was the, what does this resolution tell me about what controls I currently have or could put in place? And then, you know, thirdly, what what was rewarded in the resolution? What what is it in the compliance program that was rewarded or or punished or 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 viewed to be inadequate? You know, was there some sort of structure or reporting relationship? Kind of, you know, what what was the structure of the program, and any gaps that were observed or or, or missed? And and I would use that lens every time. And then if there was a, a meaningful takeaway for our board or senior management, you know, you you'd use that. At a minimum, a lot of these resolutions are very colorful. There might be some recitations of some emails that uh, will resonate with your your people, and you want to, you know. Use these real examples, fresh examples in your training, in your messaging, you know, rather than using the, the stale, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill kind of uh, compliance training that, that we often pull together. So when I apply that lens to Airbus, um, I, the first thing that kind of jumped out for me was there were a number of examples of what I would call compliance officer capture, where the compliance officers were really not exercising their independence. Um, there was one instance where the compliance officer was uh, encouraged or maybe volunteered to change the meeting minutes for one of the third-party review committees, you know, where there there's some question about what was the purpose of this third party. And because the facts didn't, you know, reconcile with what had happened, there actually was a an instance where the minutes were revised. And that that's always a, a bad fact. You know, another thing from the from the Airbus case that, that that I've been watching as a trend in some other cases is I noticed that despite the pervasive levels of of fraud and corruption that were uncovered around the globe and a lot of different breakdowns and retention of third parties and entertainment um, discounting like there's a there's this this case has a lot of different things going on it wasn't just one particular scheme or, or control breakdown but despite the pervasiveness of that there was no monitor that was imposed and as a compliance person um i still identify with that uh, as an identity even though a partner at, at vincent and elkins now have and better compliance officer for for more than a decade and a half the 
the thing that you know you're most concerned about or you're very frightened about is like oh my gosh we don't want to have an external compliance officer come here and try to learn how a compliance program is supposed to operate while while they're driving our car around like that that's a recipe for for uh, for frustration so this monitor issue is something that compliance officers and management teams focus on and there was no monitor imposed here and there are a couple of observations i would make about that First, it seems surprising given the prevalence of, of the misconduct and the duration of it. Second thing I would uh, observe is that I think Airbus had engaged a panel of three compliance experts as external advisors to, to, the, to the organization. So in effect, they engaged in a self I don't know if they would call this that, but a self-monitoring arrangement where they, instead of waiting for the end of the resolution of the case, they had proactively engaged these compliance experts to help them in their reforming their compliance program. And I think that has that has a number of, of virtues to it for, for, for me as a compliance a former compliance officer and for those current compliance officers out there, that when you do find yourself in this situation where you've had an issue and you're trying to get your arms around what the problems are, you don't delay or defer the remediation of that until the end of the case. That's kind of old school investigation resolution. And I, I, I speak from being a longtime federal prosecutor too. Like that was the way we always did things is you would investigate and you figure out what happened. And then at the end of the whodunit stage, now there would be discussion about, okay, what are we going to do about it? And now I think you'll see prudent companies and, and good defense counsel are moving that conversation way up in the discussion. And you know, the old school argument would be, oh, we need to be very careful about remediating anything. You know, we learned that in law school, right? If you go put non-skid uh, stickers on the, in the lobby of the movie theater, that's an admission that it must have been a dangerous condition. And I think that kind of defensive thinking is, is, is outmoded probably for movie theater lobbies, but it definitely is for compliance programs where you need to attack your problems proactively and then... Um, by the time the resolution discussion comes about, you have a real compelling story to tell about what the root causes were and that you as an organization have addressed those. That helps demonstrate the good faith of the organization, but it also helps head off this boogeyman of, the, of a monitor. Like We know how to self-govern, and we identified the problem, and we fixed it. And, and I think on all those scores, it's, it's, it's really the, the right way to go. Um, I would say one last thing. It's not really in this resolution, but when we talk about Airbus, it, it, it reminds me of the, I believe it is the Airbus chief compliance officer now who's actually on the board of Siemens. And I think that is also an interesting trend to watch out for. Because I think with some of the recent Delaware cases about compliance program oversight and encouraging boards to ask whether they've got the, the, the appropriate compliance expertise on their board, the notion of a, of a compliance officer, experienced compliance officer, being a member of a board 
also positions that company not only for better compliance performance, but from a corporate governance standpoint, I think it sends the right message as well. And I would just jump in two two things, little practice tips. And you know, uh, Mike has incredible experience in house at so many different companies and handling compliance and, and really getting uh, you know companies uh, compliance programs up to speed. It's it's been a really incredibly educational working alongside him now at VNE. Um, when you are looking, you know, he's talking about tasking people at every resolution. I would imagine most of your listeners are already doing this. I would hope, but you know, you look at section four of every DPA or, uh, um, and it's going to talk about the relevant factors. And if you will see over the years, DOJ has gotten so much better at really outlining all of the factors that went into, uh, what it, you know, how it considered the case, what was important, what remediation occurred, what kind of root, uh, cause analyses occurred, um, that then factored into, the final resolution um, on the plea agreements. I think it's usually about the seventh paragraph where there's a similar type of analysis that takes place where they're informing the court, why it is that they felt this was a, a reasonable agreement to justify an 11C plea agreement. So um, there are really are guideposts out there to help people understand what, uh, what happened, where were the compliance failures and what have been done about it. And to Mike's last point, um, the, you know, there's been a real push at DOJ uh, since before I left and, and since I left uh, to take a closer view of monitors and when it is appropriate to bring a monitor and what are companies doing to put themselves in the best position to avoid a monitor. And getting out in front of that discussion, not waiting till you're in front of DOJ or SEC and, and in the middle of a fill uh, factors or seaboard presentation, but actually uh, you know, in the years before and in the months before getting and being proactive about that so that your best position to defend your program and that you've conducted that root cause analysis, that you've fixed all of the possible problems that there are, um, you know, that's the best way to avoid that monitor because ultimately really it comes down to what is the state of your current program now? What remediation have you done? Uh, so that the OJ and the SEC can be comfortable that this problem has been fixed and won't occur again. The thing that, that Fry just mentioned there is kind of like a critical thing is you need to work backward from that presentation. And the question is, has this, does this company understand what the problems were and have they fixed them? And can they convince us that they fixed them? And so to go backward in order to present persuasive evidence in that presentation, which only maybe lasts 90 minutes it's not something you can write that deck in the week or, or month beforehand and say, oh, here, we've got it. We've come up with a really good compliance presentation. In order to make a very compelling presentation, that'll take 18 months because what you need to do is you need to put those controls in place a year or more before and then let the evidence collect that you've effectively remediated the program, through, show through data and evidence that this control is working. You can't put that control in place two weeks before the presentation and say, oh, we fixed it. Everything is good here. Nothing to see. You need to think when that day comes, what compelling evidence will we want to be able to muster that will convince them we've got the right thing? And that takes a while. So that's another reason why you need to jump on that as soon as possible. And investigations as it's unfolding, yes, additional facts can come out. But as soon as 
issues and themes start emerging, you need to start fixing them as soon as possible and, and building your, your case. Gentlemen, I now like to turn to the J&F Investments case. And for I'm going to uh, start with you. This one was, for me, a little bit unusual because it, it spun out of the JBF settlement in Brazil. Two years later, we had an FCPA enforcement action. So I wanted to start with um, your thoughts on, is, is this unusual? Uh, what's it like working with uh, Brazilian prosecutors? My sense is that there was a good relationship between the uh, FCPA unit and the uh, Brazilian prosecutors. And um, how do you handle what I might call a spinoff prosecution? You might call it just a, a regular prosecution. This is somewhat uh, unusual, maybe in, in modern FCPA enforcement, that you have it uh, you know, less, uh, you know, a resolution like this happening, um, you know, not happening on the same day. In this case, separated by over a year, I believe, almost two years. Um, but it's not unprecedented, and it's not even unprecedented in the, uh, you know, in among U.S. agencies. And I think we saw the Beam resolution earlier this year, where DOJ and the SEC. Uh, resolved on different dates, um, really about the same conduct. So, you know, th- these two cases are, uh, you know, you, you can see there's obvious um, overlap between the Brazilian prosecutors and their treatment of the case, and then, then it occurring a little bit later in the U.S. Um, I think partly that may be able to be chalked up to the fact that, um, you know, this uh, anti-corruption enforcement, Brazil has really done a phenomenal job um, in, in how they've you know, you know, stood up a enforcement regime almost overnight over the last few years uh, and, and brought so many significant cases here. Um, uh, but at the same time, you know, DOJ and the SEC are going to be working uh, potentially more methodically in when they bring their cases. And, you know, there, there is uh, a system to it. And I don't have any inside intel on, nor would I be able to share it if I did know why this one particularly uh, was separated the way it was. But I think what you do see is a, a more of the common thread that we've seen now over the last several years of a very strong working relationship between the Brazilians and DOJ. Um, it is uh, uh, something that, you know, um, if you had to choose, and I think you've heard DOJ people say this publicly, their strongest uh, relationship uh, it really could be with the Brazilians right now in terms of sharing information. Um, and it is done informally, partly because it's been a work in progress in Brazil and how they handle it. Um, I think there's always going to be encouragement by the U.S. government, particularly DOJ, with their foreign counterparts that things can be done informally. Sharing of information can be done informally uh, to help build cases and sometimes um, that has been more of a struggle with the European counterparts to get sign off to informal information sharing um, the way you see in, in Brazil. And so it's, uh, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me uh, that you'd then see this type of case, even if it was a bit surprising that it wasn't uh, aligned to take place at the exact same time. Um, but again, it's uh, just the latest example of, of, uh, one of these cases that began in Brazil and then uh, ended up with a very large resolution in the U.S. as well. Mike, if I could uh, turn to you now, this case to me presented some of the most unique facts I've seen in an FCPA enforcement action. Um, we had a purchase 
out of bankruptcy uh, by JNF US of Pilgrim's Pride. So that was kind of an interesting point, two, number one. But number two is uh, it really led to me to wonder what's the responsibility uh, in the M&A situation of the acquired entity, the target. We talk about M&A in terms of the context of the acquirer, certainly doing pre-acquisition due diligence and a wide variety of other activities. But now we have uh, questions around the target. So how would you as a compliance officer think about some of these lessons? And then maybe how would you think about investigating a parent if, if that situation arose or you received information along those lines? Yeah, well, that's a, as you're right, it's, a, it's kind of an unusual situation. And um, it's one that's not really um, through because of corporate governance and, and, and control provisions. It's not it's not one that's going to be um, easily remedied. It's not very often, if ever, that a subsidiary is going to be able to say we're going to be conducting due diligence on you, and uh, we want to perform the investigation of, of you. Now, there are situations like in a government contracting uh, situation where a U.S. sub is set up to allow uh, U.S. federal contracting um, uh, entitlements or, or contracts and security agreements may require that that's, that standalone independence. And so there's a little bit of latitude and, and uh, um, influence built in for the subsidiary to push back against a foreign-owned subsidiary. But those are, those are very... Um, those are very unusual. Um, I think the the takeaways for me from this this matter are certainly, as you point out, the M and A transactional due diligence issues. Just putting aside the minority control versus the the, the acquired versus acquiring entity, um, the M and A due diligence issues. You need a good procedure put up set up, and the, you need to follow through. But the risks are somewhat bespoke, and um, they're not so amenable to standardized uh, controls as much as having a checklist and um, well-trained, astute people uh, operating the due diligence process and asking the right questions and persisting in getting answers to those questions. Um, So it certainly um, reinforces that. The other takeaway I have on this matter, I mean, this is this is not an operating company issue in, in my view. And so, so to a larger degree, I, I think the the analysis that I described before is less um, informative uh, for, for the JBS matter. So I, I kind of look at it from the standpoint of, my gosh, it just shows you what deep pockets will get. This is one of the largest resolutions in, in FCPA history. And. It's, it's really a testament to the deep pockets. The next takeaway I have from this is um, kind of a bit of a mantra that I, I've followed for a long time, and that is as it pertains to government enforcement agencies and officials. And I even refer to myself, like when I used to go around giving speeches as a member of the U.S. Department of Justice and telling people uh, – what to look out for and what, what what to do. And that mantra goes like this, like pay attention to what they do, not just what they say. And what that means is in this case, 
you notice that despite this massive settlement and seemingly strong evidence of corruption, there was absolutely no individual criminal liability here. Like, so we, we hear the department, and it is certainly, I think, expressed in good faith, saying we want to prosecute more individuals. Individual accountability is what matters, and I can tell you it does, but it's really hard to do. Um, and it's just one example of how it's easy to say this is our policy imperative and initiative, but sometimes those things are really difficult to follow through on. So when you're shaping your compliance program and your compliance program investments, um, I think it's good to look through where has the department's emphasis really been, what actions have they tended to take and what have they not taken, and that often tells you a very different story than what the public comments will of the enforcement officials, which are made in, in the utmost good faith, but it just it just shows there's a delta between what you'd like to do and what you what you actually can do because of the, the challenges of enforcement or, or availability of ev- evidence. All right, gentlemen, now let's turn to Goldman Sachs, uh, largest FCPA settlement of all time, um, multinational, uh, literally across the globe. And Fry, I wanted to maybe start with you to just give us some idea of how the department would work up a case such as this, how many prosecutors would work on it, how, how would uh, the supervisor or the lead uh, really coordinate everything because you had multiple violations, not only across the globe, but also in the United States of various laws. So could you help us think about how you would think about organizing something like this? Yeah, and this is a case that involved multiple officers and multiple aspects. Um, you had uh, ultimately, if you look at the court filing, what began as a civil case, uh, a forfeiture case out in the Central District of California, and again, um, another case where you know I supervise on that broad section DOJ, and we were just one of several entities involved. You had the fraud section. Uh, in the criminal division, the money laundering section in the criminal division. You had the uh, Central District of California early on in the uh, civil case, and then uh, Eastern District of New York, um, which who has become with more frequency a partner of the fraud section in bringing these FCPA cases. Um, so you have multiple prosecutors involved at, at different levels. And, you know, the question of who ends up being on that team is largely driven by venue, right? And... Uh, DOJ taking an aggressive position um, on how it can bring cases based on the flow of, of money uh, into both SDNY and EDNY. Um, here you had a property in California um, and other conduct occurring there that uh, lends itself to venue uh, potentially there as well. So that's one area of which U.S. Attorney's Office gets involved. Um, uh, you know, the cases begin on from a number of sources, right? You've got you're putting aside the voluntary disclosures, which I think these days are about a quarter to a fifth of the cases DOJ investigates, you know, whistleblowers, you've got uh, investigative media, you've got other types of, uh, you know, foreign sources, foreign counterparts bringing cases to their attention. And then, uh, you know, law enforcement officers actually going around and, and developing sources and leads. So however that actually comes in, when you're looking for venue, the U.S. Attorney's Office to team up with and which sections within the Department of Justice would be involved. This, uh, you know, ultimately is an FCPA matter, but 
you know, the money laundering connection that contributed heavily, as you could see in the uh, press releases and in the other in their filings. Um, and like any case now, what you deal with is where was the conduct occurring, and do you have foreign authorities that you can do it? Uh, here you've got foreign authorities. Ultimately, a big revolution in Malaysia. Um, you have authority in Singapore, and here with a bank that's highly regulated by other entities, both in the New York and uh, and federally. So the Fed, Reserve, the uh, uh, New York Department of Financial Services, other entities that would want to be actively involved. And so, as you rightly imagine, that can be a, a logistical. Um, headache in how to arrange this, how to deconflict among the government entities. And frankly, if I'm uh, putting on my current hat, you know, you how do you as a uh, the, the attorney helping a client um, manage all of the various regulators? And I have to do this on multiple cases now with other highly regulated uh, companies. You know, managing all the different work strings that are coming at you at the same time, oftentimes it might relate to the very same set of facts. And so we touched on earlier the uh, the anti-piling on aspect of this, and that's highly relevant. And it's highly relevant in kind of managing the information flow, um, respecting each of the uh, you know sovereign entities and each of the governmental regulators' um, respective interests in this and not discounting that in any way. Um, but needing to create a way to streamline information flow back and forth and, and responsiveness to various requests. So, you know, on both sides, um, both as a prosecutor, that's important because you don't want to do anything. First, frankly, if you're a DOJ prosecutor, as I used to be, you don't want others to do anything that might impact your investigation unwittingly, um, both from domestic enforcement agents to foreign authorities. Um, and, uh, and, you know, on the, on the defense side, you're also highly cognizant of the fact that your cooperation with one set of authorities could impact your cooperation with others. And so you need to find ways to, to balance that and to hope that the, the governments are talking to each other, um, so that you're not, uh, doing anything that could be seen as a mistake, um, uh, by one or the other. Um, but yet, you know, the one, one side wants, but the other side ultimately finds that they would not have wanted to occur. So it's a, it's a very difficult balancing act, but one that uh, um, has to be handled deftly. Um, you know, and, and this was, you said, I mean, this is a, a huge, large case. I think I wanted to touch on something Mike said earlier. You know, there is this incredible effort to bring uh, cases against individuals, which is the biggest deterrent. And, um, you know, it was a, that was a sea shift in the way these cases were viewed in my period at DOJ, when I started, I often felt uh, that we were getting the cart before the horse, looking at the companies, and when really the best way to bring those cases um, was to go after the individuals. And once you have individual culpability, the case against their entity, uh, their employer, becomes so much easier to bring, and it puts the government in such a stronger uh, negotiating position. Um, what you see here in this, uh, the Goldman resolution is, uh, the government in a very, very strong position. Um, once they have a plea agreement in place with a cooperating witness, um, like they did with Tim Leisner. So, you know, they, that, and that there are other charges that have been brought against Joe Lowe and, uh, 
uh, Roger Ong um, still pending, and there's a trial pending against Ong. But the fact that you or they were able to bring a, uh, a have a plea deal where somebody is admitting to conduct within the scope of their authority on behalf of a bank, uh, you can imagine makes it a much e- uh, puts them in a stronger negotiating position with an entity than they would have without such a plea deal in place. Um, and that's just you know the the nature of criminal corporate responsibility uh, in America right now. Um, you know, given the current state of the law. So, you know, once that sea shift happened at DOJ, I think they've been able to bring better and stronger cases because they really have been focusing on bringing a case against individuals. And I'll tell you one thing that I think, though, should be more emphasized by those of us in the defense bar. You know, one of the fill-up factors is the adequacy of enforcement against individuals and whether that alone um, you know, should be a more significant factor when determining what to do with companies. Um, because in the instances where there only are one or two or a handful of people, um, and there are strong cases to be made about, you know, whether internal controls were circumvented, um, it, you know, I think it would be helpful to remind the government of the fact that uh, in those types of cases, you know, justice does not necessarily demand a huge corporate fine or corporate resolution. So if you can position yourself as a company to really say, look, we have helped you bring a case against individuals, that individual was working in a very small subgroup, you know, it really just does not serve by just getting your kind of flush against the company as well. And I think that's something that would be worth uh, revisiting with the government uh, more frequently. And it shouldn't just be a fait accompli, but it, a corporate settlement must always follow. Mike, if I could uh, turn to you now, and once again, we have a massive case with uh, settlements, I think, with eight different enforcement agencies across the globe, largest FCPA case, multiple acts, both money laundering, uh, bribery, and corruption. Uh, once again, how do you think through uh, the application of the Goldman case to, to your company, you as a CCO, uh, you've, you've kind of walked us through how you the process you use to analyze, but does that work with something that's not only massive in terms of dollars, but also massive in terms of number of enforcement agencies and different uh, uh, violations of different laws across the globe? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly there are not many businesses across the globe that are analogous in size and scope and in the offense conduct here in this Goldman Sachs matter. So if you looked at it too precisely, you'd say, well, not many insights in there. But I look at this case and I think there's this, it's loaded with um, valuable, actionable takeaways. So um, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about monitors, but I think, again, this is a case that um, you have to look at and say, well, you know, there's this pervasive uh, corruption scheme, the largest settlement in history, and there's no monitor. And it's true, even though Goldman Sachs had a resolution, I guess you call it a resolution earlier this year, where they received a complete declination, both from DOJ and SEC, involving one of their investment bankers trying to arrange a corruption scheme in Africa. So, they're, they're not only a multiple offender, but just this year they've had some real serious uh, issues and no monitor. And I, I think the reason for that is 
they've got a phenomenal compliance program. Uh, in my time as a compliance officer, I've done some benchmarking with the folks at Goldman, and I was just incredibly impressed. The specific subject was on data analytics, and I, I, I can't think of a more sophisticated program, um, not only because of the capability of their team, but you know they, they have a very data-rich environment as a as a um, regulated uh, institution. They, of course, it's clear from the from the resolution documents they tape record phone calls, so the the amount of data that they have about their people is. It's a data-rich environment. They have a lot of work information to work with, and they do a lot with it. Um, but I, I think there are some interesting takeaways for any any line of business. And so, the one of the first I would point out to compliance officers, general counsel, is that this case is a good illustration of the you you, you in the compliance program. You have to not only be right just once, but you need to be always right or persistently right. This was a case where the compliance program very effectively shut the door on these corrupt third parties through their know your customer uh, procedures. They identified that Lowe was not somebody they wanted to do business with, and they very emphatically slammed the door. And yet the perpetrators here within Goldman kept knocking on the door and they kept trying to get this guy back in. And eventually when somebody on the compliance team let down their guard for a moment and this, the, the business the bank started doing business with this guy. And you can all think of it you should think of that in your, in your own company is like, do we have controls that are persistent? That is, when we turn down this gift and hospitality proposal, how do we know that that is going to persist and that it's not going to be submitted again next week by a different employee describing it differently and it gets approved by somebody else without you know, knowing that this advice or, or decision had been taken? Is this third party who is, they've tried to get in and we've rejected do we have a persistent process to make sure that they stay out? Or once they've been in and we've kicked them out because of an audit or whatever, do our, is our system persistent in making sure that those decisions stay or those actions are, 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 are memorialized and that the information and decisions we've taken are available to other people on the team? Um, so this, that there's a great question there that, involves prior investigations, audit work, disciplinary action. Like there's a saying, you know, if we only knew what we know, we would really be dangerous. And it's kind of like, we've got all this information within the organization. Can we bring it to bear when we need to? Because if if the government finds that you had the information over here and you didn't connect this dot with that dot, like they expect, I think, you know, unfairly substantial omniscience that you can connect all those dots and, and, and then, you you be held accountable. The next thing I think that I would I I I, um, I pointed out is that the the company here had a process where they asked the right questions. They they asked of the business, why do you want to do business with this particular customer? And they received representations that said you know X Y and Z. And in the settlement documents, it questions or kind of criticized the compliance functions failure to conduct independent investigation to verify or corroborate or disprove these representations that were made that later turned out to have been false. 
And to me, that that kind of language sends a chill down my spine as a compliance officer because systems are set up to rely on internal representations. We ask questions about, you know, what is the proposed compensation for this this third party? How do you want to use them? What what what's their record? You know, this is the way it works. And there's never an assumption that you're going to be lied to consistently. And and the notion that without a red flag or some sort of suggestion that what you're being told is not true needs to be independently investigated by the compliance function, I think is a hopefully a, a, a point that kind of leaks into these documents that isn't going to be carried forward. I, I, I think I think that it will be kind of backbreaking for compliance programs to have to interpret this settlement as requiring that kind of independent verification in the absence of a internal contradiction or, or red flag. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting from the, I think it came out of the Hong Kong um, resolution rather than the U.S. DOJ or SEC settlement documents, but um, there's this, I, I think I think we tend to think about compliance red flags as being separate from commercial red flags. And, and this really, I think there was an example in this case that kind of shows that they're really one in the same. And when a deal doesn't make sense commercially, that is a compliance red flag. And it, it also means that you need to know your business or you're not going to be able to spot the red flag. And the fact that I'm talking about is I think in the Hong Kong resolution, they said that one of the, the deals that was, was approved here, um, that the, the margin, the, comp- the the profit on the deal was orders of magnitude, like three times or something like that, more profitable than any of the, was it five times, five times more profitable than any of the hundreds of deals they had done in Southeast Asia for the previous five years. And there was no explanation of why would that be? And there was no question about why would that be? Like when a deal sticks out from a commercial perspective in that kind of dramatic way, that that is something that you should ask of your own team. Like, do we have visibility into that? Do we understand the commercial premise on which this deal is being constructed? And if we don't have either the information to judge this deal or the context or framework with which to make a judgment about that, we could be um, um, second guessed in the same way. If I can just jump in and this, by the way, I said it earlier, but having Mike as a colleague here has been so great. And I listen to you really parse documents that you're reviewing from the outside and really gathering so much Intel, um, I think it's been useful, but you, you hit the nail on the head on really, you know, what the takeaways could be from this case, uh, from our perspective now on, on what, what are the, what you learn lessons learned from the case, the, uh, you know, going back just for a second, you talked about, um, you might have mentioned, you know, why no monitor? And of course that's a big question. And a lot of this has to deal with a, a shift, you know, a, even if it's somewhat at the margins and how the the government's supposed to approach these cases and really just rem, re, uh, reminding a kind of, uh, you know, refocusing on what should matter when you make the decision of, of whether you have a, a monitor. And Mike, you talked about the earlier case that came out against the Goldman employee 
this year, Burko, uh, the SEC. And what was notable there, though, was um, that conduct had been flagged by the compliance department at, at the bank. And, uh, you know, Charles Kane, the, uh, the chief of the SEC's FCPA unit, you know, made a statement. Um, and I pulled it up while we were talking. But, you know, if you look at the press release, you know, went out of his way to say the firm's compliance personnel took appropriate steps to prevent the firm from participating in the transaction and is not being charged. Um, really, you know, a noteworthy statement to suggest there's a carrot and a stick here uh, for compliance professionals. And I think, you know, that coupled with all the other things that Mike pointed to, I, I would, I think, fully justify the decision not to pursue a monitor or one on the, on the bank here. Um, you know, given, I mean, there's are very good factors at play and that the government appropriately considered when it made the ultimate decision here, notwithstanding the very large revolution. But I think people too often get caught up in the numbers. That's not what drives that decision, right? Those numbers are supposed to be fairly methodically deployed based on a, a you know, a true and faithful application of the U.S. sentencing guidelines in chapter eight as it relates to uh, you know, companies and enforcement and business organizations. So that really needs to be a distinct and should be a distinct consideration from monitor question. And it, it seems that it very much was and um, it was appropriately handled uh, in that in this case. Yeah, I think there are two two last things that are kind of interesting about Goldman. Um, one is uh that's already happened and one that might happen. Uh, the, the one that's already happened is that they, they undertook some very aggressive clawbacks. Uh, I'll call them very aggressive. Maybe, maybe in the, the grand scheme of how much money these guys make, uh, it's not that much, but they did claw back a lot of compensation against senior executives, including uh, C-suite folks, former CEO, current uh, CEO. It took a hit. Um, and I think that's a great practice. Um, I don't want I don't want to diminish the motivation behind it, but I think it's really shrewd as well. It is really smart for that board to have done that to show that senior management is being held accountable because as we alluded to earlier, there are there is evidence in Delaware corporate governance law that the boards are begun, beginning to be held more accountable under the long dormant uh, Caremark standard to to exercise that compliance oversight. And I think if you look at um, the Wells Fargo resolution, where I think it was four board members were knocked off the board by the Federal Reserve uh, because of uh, their lapses in in overseeing compliance at and risk management at at Wells Fargo, I think boards and especially those of financial institutions need to be thinking about: Is this accountability wheel going to be turning toward me eventually? It's kind of been climbing the ladder, and I think a a smart board is also now thinking about. What do we need to do to make sure that our compliance program is being run correctly? And I think it is interesting. There is now, uh, unpredictably, an alignment between the guidance that the Department of Justice is giving and that which Delaware uh, courts are giving, which is like they're both saying you need to have a risk assessment process. If you don't have a reliable way to identify what your mission-critical compliance risks are so you can address them 
proactively, you've got a, a gap. And, and, and that's true from the Department of Justice program uh, evaluation guidance and from the, the Marshand and other recent uh, governance cases. Both are also saying you need to have some predictability in terms of what issues are brought before the board. And I think that means you need a mandatory escalation policy. You need to define with some predictability, these are the issues that we expect to hear about when they come up. And if we're not hearing about them, we're going to take that as a representation that they're not arising because we don't want you to be making ad hoc decisions about what's board appropriate. Like, let's be really clear about about what comes comes to the board. And then the final thing, um, which is less clear from DOJ, but I, I think it's it's good good practice, is there needs to be an ethics and compliance program charter. The board and management, in particular the compliance management, need to lay out with some specificity in writing, here is how we are going to discharge our ethics and compliance uh, obligations. Here's who's going to be accountable for what. Here's what expectations we have with respect to that. And it would, you could even incorporate that escalation policy into that charter so that the board can demonstrate that it has discharged its fiduciary duties by being clear with management about what is expensive management. I, I think that that's one of the things that maybe the Goldman board was thinking about when they're thinking, oh, let's, let's not be like that Wells Fargo board. Let's show a little bit of proactive um, accountability and, and hold senior management accountable. Even though they weren't directly implicated in the misconduct, we want to we show that we're not asleep at the switch. Uh, gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but this has just been a, a fascinating episode. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me on this, and I hope that I uh, can call upon uh, one or both of you all again uh, when our next series of uh, the big three come up. <laughs> I'd love that, Tom. Yeah, it was our pleasure. Thanks a lot for having us. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm pleased to announce that the latest podcast series in the Compliance Podcast Network, The Wirecard Saga, has premiered. Originally, it was on the FCPA Compliance Report, but due to its popularity, I have rolled it into its own podcast series. Subscribe to it on the Compliance Podcast Network. It will be out on iTunes the first week in December, so subscribe to the iTunes version of the Wirecard Saga. We're going to take this as long as we can. We know you'll enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Street Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>